uh, our gracious Heavenly Father, please uh, make us attentive to your word. And we thank you that you've gathered us together, that we might uh, hear your voice. And we pray that we would hear your voice uh, in all humility, uh, that we would tremble at your word, and that we'd be ready to be uh, corrected and rebuked and taught and, and trained in righteousness, as Paul says to Timothy about your word. So please, Lord, uh, uh, watch over us this day. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Uh, so I was talking about, uh, just talking about these uh, mission hands. Uh, our big hope, our big prayer, uh, that uh, this year uh, we'd see at least five people put their faith in Christ, uh, that we'd see people committing to follow Christ. And I guess I want to say, uh, maybe that's going to start today. I don't know that we think about this very much, but uh, the, the purpose of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, they're actually evangelists. right? They're trying to get people, to, to persuade people to put their faith in Christ, to follow him. And in particular, that's Matthew's purpose in today's passage, is to convince us to put our faith in Christ. And to achieve that purpose, he wants us to see three things about faith. Uh, these may not be his labels, right? These are the labels I'm putting on it. Uh, he wants us to see the need of faith, the object of faith, and the results of faith. Three things. Uh, but before we uh, kind of delve into those three things, uh, I, want us to, uh, I want to remind us of where we're up to in this section of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew 8 to 10. Uh, perhaps you remember when we started this section a few weeks back, uh, I pointed out that this section of Matthew's Gospel uh, has nine different miracles. Uh, they're in three groups of three. Uh, so the first set of miracles in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, uh, was the healing of, uh, of a man with leprosy, uh, the centurion's servant, if you remember that, and Peter's mother-in-law. That's the first set of, uh, set of three. The second set of miracles in chapter 8, verse 18, through to chapter 9, verse 8, uh, was Jesus calming the storm. Uh, it was him uh, delivering uh, the two demon-possessed men, and it was the healing of the man who was paralysed. Today we come to the third set of miracles. Uh, so you'll see in our passage uh, that the first miracles, it's kind of a, two miracles joined together, right? The raising of this, uh, this dead little girl and the healing of the woman who has this bleeding problem. Uh, that's followed by the healing of the two blind men and the healing of the demon-possessed man who can't speak. Right? So we've got these nine miracles, three groups of three, and most of them are, are about Jesus' power, his incredible power to heal people, uh, to heal people physically, right? Uh, but as we've worked through these miracles, we've also seen that Matthew's primary concern in this section is not to show us that Jesus has the power to heal people physically. Jesus can do that. It's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing thing. Uh, but Matthew's primary concern is to show us uh, how Jesus has this amazing power to heal us spiritually, uh, to heal our deepest sickness, the sickness of our sin. That's what Matthew's driving at all the time. So what we've seen in this section is that in between these stories about these miraculous stories of Jesus healing people, uh, Matthew includes stories about people following Jesus, even himself following Jesus. Right? His point is that if you want to experience Jesus' incredible power, not just to heal you physically, but to heal you spiritually, to experience the wonder, the glory of being forgiven of your sins and accepted by God, if you want to experience that, you have to follow Jesus. You have to put your faith in him. So that's where we're at today. Right? Matthew's trying to convince us to put our faith in Christ. Why do we have to do that? That's my first point. Look, let's have a look at why we need to do that. Uh, what's the need for faith in verses 18 to 26? 
Have a look. In verse 18, you'll see uh, Jesus uh, was having a conversation with the disciples of John the Baptist about fasting. Uh, That's where we left off last week. Uh, And a synagogue ruler comes and throws himself at his feet, uh, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her. Uh, She will live. It's got to be every parent's worst nightmare, right? Uh, His little girl, the, 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 the one that he loves, has just died. So Jesus goes with him. Uh, this story is also recorded in Mark and Luke's Gospel. You, you might have heard it before. There's a bit more detail in those Gospels. So in Mark's Gospel, uh, we learn that this synagogue ruler's name is Jairus. And Jairus's faith, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? Uh, in chapter 8, we saw the faith uh, of that Roman centurion. Right? He believed that Jesus could heal his servant simply by speaking. Right? He said to Jesus, Jesus, don't bother coming to my house because you, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I, I've not met anyone with faith like this, not in all of Israel. Right? It's an incredible faith. Now, Jairus isn't quite that impressive because uh, you'll notice that he does uh, think that Jesus probably will have to put a hand on his daughter. Uh, but he does believe that when Jesus does that, his daughter will live. That's impressive. Even more impressive, because remember, verses 1 to 17 of this chapter, what's been going on? Pretty much all the Jewish leaders, Jairus' kind of buddies down at the local synagogue, all of them have been increasing in their hostility towards Jesus. They've been rejecting Jesus. So what makes Jairus come to Jesus in such a public display of faith? even though everyone he knows is rejecting him. What makes him do that? It's desperation. It's desperation. His little girl has died and he feel, he's got nowhere else to turn. What are you going to do? Now, this often happens, right? It's only when something happens in our life that, that brings us to breaking point. Uh, that, that kind of brings us to the end of ourselves. We're, we've run out of our wisdom, our strategies, our resources, our strength. Uh, it's at that point we feel completely hopeless uh, that out of sheer desperation, we think, oh, I'll turn to Jesus. Uh, perhaps for the first time, like Jairus does here, or for the thousandth time. And maybe that's you today, right? You sit here today and you've got, uh, you, you really are burdened by something. Uh, You've got a need. You've got this puzzle, this situation that that seems completely hopeless. If that's you, I want to urge you to do a gyrus, so to speak. Turn your desperation into faith. Right? Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Plead for his mercy. Ask him to relieve your burden. And Jesus wants to do that. Right? A couple of chapters after this, in in Matthew uh, chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is what Jesus wants to do. Right? Maybe you have to do that today. Turn your desperation into faith. Come to the Lord Jesus. Throw yourself before him. Plead for his mercy. And find rest in him. So Jairus is is motivated by just absolute sheer desperation. And it's the same uh, for this woman with the bleeding problem. Have a look. In verse 20, Matthew says uh, she has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Uh, Luke tells us in Luke 8, verse 43, uh, that no one has been able to heal this woman. Uh, Mark says that despite seeing lots of different doctors, uh, her condition has only gotten worse, not better, in the last 12 years. 
Right? She comes to Jesus out of desperation. It's a last-ditch effort. And once again, uh, why does Matthew put the story of this woman here? Now, of course, it's a wonderful thing that Jesus heals her physically, but Matthew's priority is not to teach us that. Uh, and this woman's here as an illustration of our desperate spiritual condition. At first, but because her physical condition had made her unclean. Uh, we don't know exactly uh, what this woman's condition was, but it seems that uh, it's some sort of excessive menstrual bleeding. Uh, basically, she'd had a period for 12 years. 12 years, but non-stop. It's horrible, isn't it? Uh, aside from all the physical ramifications that would come from that, uh, her bleeding also means that her own people, the Jews, uh, considered her to be spiritually unclean. Right? She was unfit to be in the presence of God, who is holy and pure and just. It's unfitting for, uh, the, like, uh, the blood is a sign of death, right? It's unfitting for, for something so linked to death to be in the presence of the giver of all life. That's the background. So in Leviticus 15, verse 25, it says, When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, uh, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. Uh, this woman has been unclean for 12 years. Uh, but of course, that's what all of us are like, apart from knowing Christ. Our sin contaminates us. It, it makes us dirty. It makes us impure. It makes us unclean before God. Just, I, I guess, think for a moment. I was thinking about this during the week. Uh, think a, about one of the most shameful things you have ever thought or done. Uh, something you, you're really kind of glad that you're the only one who knows about. Now imagine that right now, I can see into your mind and see exactly what you're thinking. That's a bit freaky. I wonder how that makes you feel. I know how it makes me feel. Right? It makes me feel dirty and impure and unclean. It makes me feel like I wouldn't want to be in your presence if you could see the depths of my sin. And that's just another sinful human being knowing the depths of my sin. How much more when a God who is holy and pure and completely just knows the depths of our sin? Which he does, of course. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God. Not just that he knows that God is holy in his head, but he feels it, he senses it. And the angels around God's throne are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah says, I'm ruined. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Our sin makes us spiritually unclean. We're unfit to be in the presence of a holy and pure God. That's the first thing. Second, this woman's physical condition was incredibly isolating for her. We don't know this, but probably her bleeding had ruined any hope she ever had of being married. Even if she was married, she wouldn't have ever have been able to have sex with her husband. She really wouldn't have been able to have any meaningful contact with anyone. People weren't allowed to give her a hug. People weren't allowed to touch her. People weren't allowed to put their hand on her shoulder when she was crying. They weren't allowed to lie on a bed or sit on a chair where she had been. She was unclean. She was completely isolated from anyone. And that's what sin does. 
Right? Sin isolates us from other people, doesn't it? We hurt and, and wound and mistreat other people. We, we lie to people. We gossip about people. We abuse other people. And in the process, we wreck all sorts of relationships. We destroy community. Right? Sin isolates us from other people. Even more importantly, it isolates us from God. Once again, Isaiah, Isaiah 59 verse 2 uh, says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. But sin cuts us off from God's presence. It, it isolates us from God. Uh, finally, this woman's uh, physical condition uh, is incurable. It's terminal. It's deadly. But she knows, as she reaches out to Jesus, that apart from, from some miraculous interve- intervention, uh, she, she's going to die. Uh, in the same way, our spiritual condition is terminal. It's It's deadly. In our sin, where we've chosen to cut ourselves off from God. We've cut ourselves off from the source of all life. As I said earlier in this series, that, that spiritually we're a bit like the flowers that sit on our table at home. You know, when we picked them in the garden, uh, they were alive. They were thriving. They were flourishing. They looked wonderful because they were connected to their life source. But as soon as we picked them, uh, they started to die. And soon they'll be dead. That's a lovely thought. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says that apart from Christ, uh, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. So this woman's physical condition, uh, as debilitating as it would have been for her, Matthew's giving, using it to give us a confronting picture of our spiritual condition apart from Christ. We are unclean, we're isolated from God, and, and spiritually speaking, we're dead. And that's why the, Jairus' daughter is here as well. She's the same, right? That's why Matthew puts the two stories together. Right? Being dead, of course, Jairus' daughter is unclean. Numbers 19 verse 11 says, Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. Once again, it's the, it's the kind of association with death thing. Can't be in the presence of the giver of life. And she's isolated, obviously. What could be more isolated than death? And obviously her sickness is deadly. So the point of this section really is, like Jairus understands uh, that his daughter's condition is desperate. And so he reaches out to Jesus in faith. But the woman understands that her condition is desperate, so she reaches out to Jesus in faith. I wonder if you understand that apart from Christ, your spiritual condition is desperate. Or do you think you've kind of just got a a little spiritual sniffle? You can probably clean yourself up. You don't need the great doctor, Jesus. But if you do understand that how desperate your condition is, you'll reach out to Jesus in faith. Which leads to my second point, the the object of faith. I think at some point in our lives, uh, all of us will reach some kind of desperation point. Uh, our sense of being able to handle things, uh, of being self-sufficient, our sense that, that we've got things under control, uh, that is going to be eroded so much that we'll be looking for answers uh, outside of ourselves. Right? We'll be crying out for help. Or we might even be looking for a saviour. Right? We might not use those words exactly, but that's basically what we're doing. Uh, but even though we've reached that point of desperation, of course, there's no guarantee that we'll make Jesus the object of our faith. But we're just as likely to throw ourselves at the feet, like Jairus, uh, but of another saviour. A, a fake saviour, a pseudo-saviour. 
Oh, so perhaps you're grappling with a nagging sense of shame, of guilt, of, of dirtiness, of uncleanness. Oh, but you'll say to yourself, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw myself at the feet of my career. If I can just get that promotion, that project, that, that research done, that new qualification, if I can just do that, I'll be okay. But it'll be kind of like I've cleansed myself of this sense of dirtiness. Or we might think I've got this sense of isolation. I long for approval, for intimacy, for, for acceptance. So what I'm going to do is throw myself at the feet of this new relationship. Or, or perhaps a whole series of relationships. But that's how I'm going to deal with my sense of isolation. It's going to, it's going to sort me out. This man, this woman, they're my saviour. Or we'll think I've got this, uh, this real deadness in my heart. Life just feels flat. Uh, it's grey. I just feel kind of numb. So what I'm going to do is throw myself at the feet of just, just experience, pure experience. I'm going to travel, I'm going to attend gigs, I'll be at that sporting event, I'm going to pursue every experience under the sun, all in the name of allowing myself to feel just a little bit more alive for a moment. Of course, the problem uh, when we make these other things the object of our faith is, well, it's not just that we're still uh, standing under God's judgment, uh, but that, that they don't work. Uh, sure, they might give you a kick for a little while, but they don't deal with the root cause of your uncleanness, your isolation, your deadness. They don't deal with your sin. But this passage show, is showing us that the only one you should make the object of, the, of your faith, the only true saviour, the only one who's got the power to deal with your deepest problem, your deepest sickness, is Jesus. Remember last week, he is, is the, the great doctor who's come to heal those who are spiritually sick. He's the only one. In verse 21, the woman with bleeding reaches out and touches Jesus. In verse 22, Jesus says, Take heart, your uh, daughter, your faith has healed you. And from that moment on, this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, no doctor's been able to do anything for her, is healed in an instant. In verse 25, look, as soon as Jesus takes the hand of Jairus' daughter, she gets up. She's alive. She's got new life. If you haven't already, one day you will reach desperation point. And if you're honest, you'll be looking for a saviour. At that point, you should make Jesus the object of your faith. Jesus is the only one who's able to make unclean people like us clean. And not, of course, by touching us physically, but by dying on the cross for all our uncleanness. Notice in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus goes around touching all sorts of people who are unclean. People with leprosy, this woman with bleeding, a dead corpse. What's he do? In the end, he dies for all that uncleanness on the cross. It's like he collects it throughout his life and then gives his life for it on the cross. And that, so that when we put our faith in him, we might be cleansed of our sin. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, uh, we read, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're conscious of your dirtiness, your shame, your uncleanness, don't go to some pseudo-saviour. Come to Jesus. Confess your sins to him. Trust that he died on the cross to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus is also the only one who's able to bring people like us who are isolated from God back to God, near to God. 
Right, so in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, remember that at one time, he's writing to Christians, but he's saying at one time you were separate from Christ. Notice the words, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Right? Apart from Christ, Paul's saying, uh, we are completely isolated from God. Uh, but then Paul says, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, you see. Jesus is the only one who, who pays the cost to enable people like us who are isolated from God to come near to God. And he's the only one who's able to give new life to people like us who are spiritually dead. So in the same chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says... As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ. If you, if you feel that sense of desperation uh, today, ever, you feel completely hopeless, uh, you must not proudly reject Jesus to put your faith in some pseudo-saviour. Please don't do that. Put your faith in Christ, the true Saviour, the only one who's got the power to cleanse you, to bring you near to God, to give you new spiritual life both now and forever. If you do that, it'll have an incredible impact in your life. There'll be amazing results. And that's what the end of the passage is about. First, it'll be like your sight has been transformed. Uh, you'll see Jesus, even your whole life, in completely new ways. Uh, have a look in verse 27. Uh, these blind men cry out to Jesus saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. Uh, so in calling uh, Jesus the son of David, uh, these blind men are expressing faith. Right? They're confessing that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're saying, we know, Jesus, that, that you are God's promised king, the, the promised uh, king who is going to come and sit on the throne of David, uh, the one spoken about in passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7, the one who's going to come and establish and rule over God's eternal kingdom. But it's because they believe Jesus is the Messiah that they think he might be able to heal their sights. Because in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, uh, we see that when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened. Is what Isaiah says, that the ears of the death will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shall shout for joy. We'll get to the mute tongue in a second, right, with the demon-possessed man. We had the lame leaping like a deer earlier in this chapter with the paralyzed man who got up and was walking around. Here we've got the eyes of the blind being opened. Matthew's drumming at home. Jesus is the Messiah. These blind men believe that. They come to Jesus in faith. So Jesus heals their sight. But why does Matthew include this miracle at this particular point in his gospel? I think it's because he wants us to see that when we come to Jesus in faith, he'll open our eyes to see him in completely new ways. We'll have transformed sight. We'll see Jesus for who he really is. I will also have transformed speech. I just said about the, the mute tongue being unstopped, transformed speech. That's why Matthew includes this, the healing of this demon-possessed man who can't speak. We've already had Jesus driving out demons before. Why include another story? It's because of this transformed speech thing. And in chapter 10, Jesus' disciples are about to be sent out. What are they going to do? They're going to speak the good news. 
This is the transition moment we're on about. And so Jesus is telling us, or Matthew's telling us, that when people come to Jesus in faith, they'll speak in, in completely new ways. You'll notice there are actually three ways of speaking in these final verses of, of Matthew chapter 9. Uh, in verse 33, have a look there. The crowds are speaking about Jesus. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, they say. They're amazed. They're in awe. Uh, they're Jesus groupies, so to speak. They're twigging that there's something special about Jesus. They're speaking about him. And then there's the Pharisees speaking against Jesus. Uh, they can't deny that Jesus is powerful. Uh, but in verse 34, they attribute his power to demonic forces. Right? It's by the power of the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They speak against Jesus. But look at the blind men. Despite Jesus' stern warning, they speak for Jesus. They spread the news about Jesus all over the region, just as Jesus' disciples are about to do in chapter 10. And quite frankly, who wouldn't want to talk about the one who has healed your deepest need, who's brought you out of the pit of desperation, and cleansed you, and brought you near to God, and given you new life. Like, if you understand that, who wouldn't want to spread the news around like these blind men? And so there it is, the need, the object, and the results of faith. And I guess my prayer today is that either for the first or the thousandth time, uh, we as a people would throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus, a bit like Jairus, that we would plead for his mercy, uh, that we would put our faith in him. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, part of your word uh, that just gives us uh, such a picture of our desperate spiritual condition apart from our Lord Jesus. I pray that as we contemplate us, uh, contemplate this, that we'd uh, be moved afresh, or perhaps for the first time, to put our faith in him. Uh, thank, thankful that in him we can be cleansed of our sin. Uh, that in him we can be brought near to you, our Heavenly Father, and cry out to you as our Father who loves us. Uh, in the Lord Jesus, uh, excuse me, in the Lord Jesus, uh, we can be given new spiritual life, uh, raised now and, and to have eternal life with him forever. Uh, please uh, move in our hearts that we might throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Amen.